front people backwards than it is to give backward people forward. But if you're sitting in the back, if you would please choose about three or four rows further ahead, uh, you can still sit in your same general area, just further down. Uh, if you would please. If you're in the back, we'd love for you to come forward just a few rows for us. <clears throat> uh, if you've ever had an opportunity to teach classes in the auditorium, you'll understand that everybody is spread everywhere. And so uh, thank you if you would come up about three or four rows closer. That would be helpful. <laughs> well, it is if we're all closer together. I think we can hear better and, and participate a little bit better, maybe. But if you're sitting in the back, please make your way to, toward the front a few rows. <clears throat> that way, latecomers can take your seats in the back. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, all righty. If you didn't get one of our class handouts, uh, those of you who are normally in the auditorium uh, don't realize what a wonderful teacher that I am. And I always, we answer a question in our class, we ask one and we answer one. And there's nothing better than a teacher who not only gives you the question, but also gives you the answer. And so with that answer, though, we want to defend why we answered it that way. And that's why the list of passages that you see on the sheet in front of you, uh, that is passages that we're going to look at that kind of reinforce what our answer is on our sheet. And so if you did not get a sheet, raise your hand real quick because uh, Courtney, Robert, whichever you want to call him, you know, when you call him Courtney for 19 years, it's hard to switch to Robert. Ah, okay. That's even worse, isn't it? Okay. But anyway, if you did not get one of the sheets for our class this morning, Courtney has them and he'll make sure that you get one. And the question this morning that we're considering is, what does God require of man? And uh, as I told you, a wonderful teacher gives you a question and an answer. And the answer is, God requires man to obey his revealed will. But now we want to find the scriptures that back up that answer and make that answer a true one, okay? And we're going to begin in Psalms 95. And I've got a wonderful reader who's going to go to the mic so that we can all hear. And he's going to give us Psalms 95, verses 1 through 6. Let's listen in. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains, are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands form the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Uh, let's have a word of prayer together. Will you bow with me? Our Heavenly Father, thank you for the beautiful day that you created for us. Thank you for the opportunity we have this morning of coming out and looking into your word, hearing your word proclaimed and remembering that sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. Thank you, Father, for your tremendous love for us. Thank you for caring and guiding and directing. And we just pray that as we look at these passages together that we might benefit the way you intended these scriptures to encourage us. 
In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. In Psalms 95 that was just read, verse 6 in that psalm reminds us that God made us. Nothing new to all of us. We know that God made us. But verse 3 in that psalms, if you back up, tells us that God is the greatest king of all. And so because God made us, we belong to him, and he's our king. Now, we ought to see ourselves a whole lot more like servants than we do. God made us. God is the king. We are his servants, and we're ready to do whatever the king says to do. Say amen. Amen. Yeah, that's who we are. We are the yes people to what God says to do here. So when he commands us, the question that we're looking at here and the answer says that God requires us to obey him. See, he can do that because he is the king. Because we belong to him. We're his possession. He made us. Now, you know, kings throughout history expected people to obey them. Right? Okay. And so what if we, we all lived in a kingdom and we had a king instead of a president, instead of a congress and, and what we're used to in America, if we lived in a country that had a king, and let's just say the king that, uh, of our country that we're living in, that he would punish people, you know, if they would fail to obey him, but he never told people what he wanted or gave them rules to follow. He just demanded that we obey him. I mean, wow. If we lived in his country, which is what we're imagining for just a moment right here, we would always be afraid that we were going to do something that would make him angry without knowing that we were making him angry. Because we don't know what to do. It's just, you know, whatever whim or whatever kind of day he's having would result in that. And so now God is a good and a gracious king, and he makes it really clear what it is that he requires of us. And to reveal something in our answer here is to make it known what could not have been known in any other way. He had to reveal it to us, okay? And we would never have to to know God's will if he had not graciously revealed it to us. We wouldn't even know what God wanted. Unless he told us. Unless he showed us. Unless he revealed it to us right here. And so there are a lot of things about which we might wonder about. but, But God has not chosen to reveal some things to us. But what he has revealed to us is for our knowledge, for our understanding. And so that's what he requires of us. Uh, read Deuteronomy 29, 29, please. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Well, God reveals his will to us so that we might obey it. Uh, we're to be obedient followers. We're to be people who know, and because we know, we're obedient to him. We obey, and our king expects us to obey him because he has revealed his will to us, not so that we might know it and just go around saying, well, I know what God has revealed. It's not so that we can go around and say, well, you know, I know a lot of facts about God and stuff. No, he reveals his will 
so that we would become obedient to it. He says, I show you this. You clearly understand this. Now I expect you to obey that. Now, now sometimes when we get real familiar with something, it's easy to think that we're doing it because we know about it. That's not quite the same thing. Because I know about it doesn't mean I'm obeying it. That I'm making it part of my life. That, it, that it's who I am. That it's who I, I choose to be or the things that I choose. Uh, read James 1. Give us 22 to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forget what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Oh, I love that passage. Now, the trouble with my Bible class on Sunday morning is I run over passages hoping that you'll look at them more at home. That you'll take this list and you'll say, you know, there's some interesting verses there. I'd like to go back through them because I'd like to stop at every one of them. Uh, it's, it's a preacher problem, okay? Because every one of these passages will preach, and I don't want to do that because I want to cover the material that we're looking at here. But how many of you uh, have ever known a public school teacher? Ah, okay, almost everybody in this room, either your kids have them, your wife is one, <laughs> Your husband is one, or, or your relative is one. So you know about public school teachers. Sometimes teachers will grade more easily on a test that they have found out is too hard for the students, and they'll look at the best paper in the class, you know, the student who always excels, and they see that they've missed several of them. And so the teachers sometimes will lower their standards a little bit so that everybody gets a decent grade because maybe they've made the test too hard or maybe they did it on purpose, I don't know. But they'll readjust that. And some people approach God that way. Because a lot of us have known people who thought God was kind of like that kind of a teacher here. Because you'll hear people say something like, well, uh, nobody's perfect. You know, or, or, or God knows that I do the best that I can. Or that He understands when I mess up. That's not what your Bible teaches. That's what we come up with to justify some of our lack of obedience. God is perfectly holy. I don't even understand perfect holiness. I try to wrap that around my mind and I think perfect holiness. And he requires us to obey his holy law perfectly. That's the requirement. He's perfectly holy, and so he wants us to obey his law perfectly. And in our question that we're looking at in this lesson is that God requires man to obey his will. He doesn't require us to try to obey his will or to obey part of his will that we find easy to obey. Instead, God requires us to obey every law that he's given 
perfectly without failing at all not even once yes I think uh, I, I'm going to disagree with what you said okay go right ahead because uh, he knows we're not perfect yes he does and you keep saying perfectly that's not going to happen uh, but the wrong you're one step ahead of me. The reason why he requires perfection is that we have to learn we're not perfect. And we need a Savior. But his requirement is perfection. That's why we need Jesus. Ah, we have to have Jesus in our life. Ah, yeah. It, and you're absolutely right, but I was building up to that point, and, and, and you got to the point quicker. Oh, okay. I don't, I don't want you to worry, Keith. I'm not perfect, and you're not perfect, and we're going to find out what to do because we're not perfect here. But, but okay. See, God promises that he's going to judge everyone, and he's going to punish those who've done evil. I'm not perfect. Nobody in the room is perfect. None of the friends and family that we have are perfect right here. He's going to reward anyone who's done good as long as they have obeyed perfectly, always, without ever failing right here. And that's what God requires. And His will, you know, He will not accept anything less than what He requires. He's not lowering the standard for me. Everybody has to be perfect except Tom. He can slip. He can mess up. No, that's not anything in the scriptures whatsoever right here. See, it's what God requires, and he won't accept anything less than that. And when we understand that, and we really get wrap around it, we understand how important it is that Jesus is in my life. Because sometimes we don't think Jesus is all that important. Oh, what a friend we have in Jesus. I got friends, and oh, yeah, the friends are great. Oh, I like friends. No, he's more than a friend. He's more. A friend, yes, but more. And I need Jesus because of what's required us right here. You know, I needed somebody to be punished in my place because I deserve punishment. And everyone who's not perfect deserves punishment right here. You know, if we didn't need Jesus, if we could live a life of perfect obedience, we wouldn't need Jesus in our life. We could just stand before God and say, I live perfectly just like Jesus did. But, listen to Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 9. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil the Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Oh, well, there's a sermon and a half. <clears throat> Listen again to what you know, he's saying here. God has forgiven all the sins of those who put their faith 
in Jesus Christ. He, he, he will never punish them because Jesus took the punishment that you and I deserve to get. He took it. And by taking that punishment for us right here as believers, then we, we do whatever we want or whatever we please to do now? No, not, not at all. See, God is still holy. Don't, don't lower God. God is still holy and He requires holiness. And God's people depend upon Jesus Christ to make them right with God because we couldn't ever be good enough on our own. I, I really get my, my, my fur gets up when I hear somebody say, well, I, I can't be a Christian because I'm not good enough. Neither is anybody else good enough. So don't let I'm not good enough keep you from walking with Christ. Because we're not good enough. You know, we depend upon Jesus to make us right with God because we couldn't be good enough on our own. But we also work hard now to live our lives pleasing to God. Uh, give us 1 Peter 1, brother, beginning in verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Oh, wow. Brother, start passing my second sheet out. Remember, God rules as king over all mankind because he made us. That's where we started, right? God is the king. He made us all. And so he requires all people to obey him. And those of us who believe in Jesus as our savior has now made Jesus the king of our life. And if he's our king, we're going to obey him. Uh, read Matthew 7, brother. Beginning in 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow, did, did you catch the passage? Did, did you listen to it real careful? I know it's one that you're familiar with. But Jesus said that there's people who are going to go around saying that he's Lord. That there are going to be people who are working, busy for him, but they don't obey him on what he's told them to do. Uh, you and I know people uh, in denominational churches that you and I know at least enough doctrine to know that there's, you know, is not correct according to Scripture, and yet they're busy and they'll call Him Lord and they're working for Him, but they don't obey what He's told them to do. And, and so they're not going to enter heaven according to this passage because of their lack of obedience. Just saying that we're Christians don't make us Christians. 
You know, somebody could ask you this afternoon, are you a Christian? Well, yes, I'm a Christian here. Well, maybe I am and maybe I'm not. And working for Jesus doesn't make us a Christian necessarily. See, Christians are people who have put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and as their Lord. And so true Christians obey what he says to do. And they do what he says to do. Yes? Ah. Absolutely. You're right. Let me go on with this familiar story in Matthew 7, beginning in verse 24. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. I heard that ever since I was a little child, but did you notice that the wise man in that passage is the one who hears Jesus' words and puts them into practice. It's one thing to hear. It's another thing to put it into practice. It's one thing to hear, and then you go out and you have to make a decision. It's another thing to put them into practice. Because of what Jesus said, I won't do that. Because of what Jesus said, I will do that. He's putting them into practice. You know, it was several years ago now. I can't remember what year it was. Maybe some of you saw the picture too. Uh, but over in China one time, they had a 13-story, uh, Block 7 was the name of the building. And 13 stories up, and it tipped over, and it fell on a rainy day. And they showed pictures of it laying out on the ground where the whole building fell. To give you an idea of a 13-story building, uh, those of you who are old enough to remember downtown Pontiac, the Pontiac State Bank building is 13 stories, I think. So it'd be like that whole thing just bang. Now, real quickly, they're trying to figure out who to blame for why this building who was upright is now downright. And so, you know, the, they start talking about, you know, by the way, there was one worker, if I remember the story right, that was killed in that accident, and they start blaming it on uh, bad project management or uh, bad quality control in the materials. And, uh, and there was a pit that was being dug next to it to put an underground garage in, and with the muddy conditions of that time, uh, they said, well, it made the foundation destabilize, and so the building came down. I couldn't help but think when I saw the picture that maybe it was built on shifting sand. It's a preacher way of looking at stuff. I mean, it, it's different. It's weird, I know, okay? And I couldn't help but think of the song that we used to sing all the time when I was a kid because it was one of our song leader's favorite songs is that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame 
but wholly trust in Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Wow. By the way, the songwriter based that on this passage. Uh, that's where he got his inspiration to, to, to write the song right here. And the question that we got to ask is my foundation on solid rock? Or have I built it on, on other things around me? Because it's so easy to rely heavily on money or on a job or on material possessions or maybe the fame that you have or the love that you have of your family from your husband or your wife. What if all those things were stripped away? Where do you stand? And all the way through Paul's writings in the New Testament, there's this reoccurring theme that you see over and over again that you and I are to be men and women who stand firm. We, we know where we stand and we stand, you know, Ephesians 6.13 says, Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes that you might be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything, to stand. Because storms are inevitable. And sometimes it takes a storm in my life and in yours to find out where our foundation is. Do we turn to God or do we turn to something else when some crisis comes up? See, being a child of God doesn't mean that we're shielded from unpleasant situations, but it does mean that He's with us along the way. Ah. We got that sheet all passed out? Okay, shift readers. Uh, no, I got one more. Don't know. That's the last one. On shifting readers, thank you for the wonderful job reading. I could have picked on you further because you sounded so good. All righty. Now, I want you to notice with me that the next question that was passed out to you is what rules did God first reveal for us to obey? And the answer is, uh, he rules his first revealed were the moral law. Now God is the creator. God is our king. He makes the rules by which we live by, right? And he requires obedience to us. And the rules that he made are referred to in most of the books that I read as the moral law because it kind of divides the moral law from the ceremonial law. You've read books like that too. I know Ted. And so it tells us how the moral law on how you and I are supposed to behave toward God and how we're supposed to behave toward other people, all right? And God doesn't want us to obey just on the outward front, but he wants our hearts as well to be in on it. And he not only requires us to do his will, he requires us to love and desire his will. It's like, if uh, anyone gone for a long time uh, without a, a pizza and you just kind of get the hungriest for the pizza well God's will stop stop oh, oh wow it's not, not, not that close to lunch yet uh, but, but it's that same desire it's that same you, you know we want it we, we really want to know what his will is and we want it to be part of our life and he requires us to do his will he requires us to, to love and desire his will so God, if you remember back from your Old Testament studies, and we have a great one on Tuesday, by the way, on our Bible history class. And if you remember when the Ten Commandments were passed out to his people at Mount Sinai, so, nod yes, you remember this. Don't give me a puzzling look. It's a Ten Commandments. 
okay. Anyway, when he gave them, God at that moment was revealing more and more of his will to his people. And then over the centuries, he kept revealing more and more and more and had people write down, you know, the scriptures that you and I have today. And before there was any written rules, though, God had already revealed himself to mankind. Because, you know, even, because, even before anything was written down, in fact, even people living today who have never seen or never have heard of a Bible, they understand some of God's moral laws. Because he has revealed that to our hearts. God made us in his image. And part of being made in his image is that we have an awareness in us on what is right and what's wrong. You know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that some things are wrong. And some things are, are, are right. Animals and other creatures, by the way, have no conscience. They just do what their instincts tell them to do. But mankind is different. We have within us, a, a God created us with a conscience that tells us that some things are right, some things are wrong, and we know whether we're following God's rules or whether we're not doing what pleases God. And, and because of that, that first sin choice of Adam and Eve in the garden, there, there's a part of man since then who also wants to choose what is wrong, the, the sinful side of us, including, by the way, our conscience. Sometimes we'll, we'll shut down our conscience and, or it'll become hardened because we ignore it and we choose sin in spite of what, we're, what we know is right. And, and even though we know right from wrong, it's not an excuse ever for disobeying the rules of our king and the one who created us. Brother, give me Romans 2, starting in verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these, not having the law, are a law unto themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Ah, now where does that verse say that this requirement of the law are written for those who've never had the law? Yeah, on their heart. They know what's right. And they know what's wrong. God gave Moses a lot of laws to pass on to his people, the, the Israelites at that time. And some of them are part of the moral law and other parts of it are what we call the ceremonial law. And what we mean by that, ceremonial law, that was made up of the rules like on, on how to offer sacrifices or what the priests had to wear, you know, or what went on in the tabernacle. All of these things were pictures of what Jesus would do for us once he comes. Uh, it, it's a forelook that Jesus became those things for us here. And, and these were all things that were pictures of him coming. And now that he's come, God no longer requires people to keep the rules of the ceremonial law. Jesus fulfilled those things, all right? But the moral law is different. God requires all people everywhere to keep it all the time. I know what Keith's thinking. Yeah. 
no matter who the person is, no matter what time he lives in history, and no matter what country he lives in, you know, his creator, our king, requires us to obey the moral law. Uh, listen to Matthew 5. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Uh, get ready to amen again. Okay, I'm, I'm giving you a warning because it's a statement where I promise you that you're going to agree with. Everything God gives is good. Amen. Yes, everything that God gives is good. And the moral law is one of God's good gifts to mankind. See, the, the moral law has, has several really important things about it. Number one, it shows us a lot on what God is like. Yes, brother, I'm sorry. He says for us to be holy like He is holy. Well, holy is to be set apart. But we're to be set apart from the world, set apart for His kingdom, for His work, and not for our own. So that's what, you know, when you say be holy... It's not being perfect, but it's set apart for a certain task, certain yeah. avenue. Okay. Do you realize that the moral law teaches us a lot on what God is like? When we see the moral law, we start saying, wow, God is holy, and, and He hates evil, He loves righteousness, he created us in His image and He places within us a conscience that tells us when we're doing what's right, when we're doing what's wrong. You know, God shows us what He's like. He's unfolding Himself to us. By requiring righteousness and holiness from us, God demonstrates His own righteousness and His own holiness. It's, it's who God is. Listen to Leviticus chapter 20. You shall consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Wow. Uh, again, I hate jumping over passages, but you have the list, and so you get to look at them a little bit closer on your own, okay? Because there, there's so much that, that's here. The moral law does something else, though, that I think is important for us. It shows what God requires of us. But when I understand the moral law more, since God created us and God's the one who designed us, He knows what's best for us, believe it or not. We think we know what's best for us, but God does know. He knows this is good for you, this is not good for you. This is good for you, this is not good for you. God knows what's really best for us, and the best for thing, thing for us is to do what God, our Creator, has said for us to do. God could have made us and then simply just left us wandering around on earth doing our own thing right here. 
And he could have made it to where we didn't know his purpose for us. We just kind of wandered around ignorant. Matter of fact, there are some people doing that. But anyway, that's choice, not by God. He could have done that. You know, but by creating us with a conscience, with giving us his word, God has revealed to us how to live the best life possible that you can live. Here's the best life. And the more like Christ you are, the more the best life you're living. The, the more you make those choices right here, and he reveals to us, you know, how to live the best life possible and how to be right with him who made us and who is our king. And so people don't have to wonder what to do to please God. <clears throat> we don't have to wander around saying, I don't know what God wants. I don't know what, whether I'm doing pleases God or doesn't please God right here. We don't have to wonder how we should live. God has revealed those things to us, and he's done it through his moral law. Brother, give me another Old Testament passage, Micah 6. He Verse. has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Ah. Uh. The moral law does another important thing. It shows each one of us how sinful we are. Uh, getting back to Keith's comment earlier, uh, you know, no, we're not perfect, but the moral law shows us how imperfect we are. How we've made wrong choices, that we've done what is not right. And, you know, it causes us to see the danger and the need that we have for salvation in Christ. I need it. You need it. Everyone needs it even if they don't know it yet or don't understand it yet. And if God didn't reveal his moral law to us in Scripture, and if we never felt bad when we did something wrong right here, we would think that, uh, well, we're, we're pretty good people. You, you know, we're better than some I know. I don't do that one. And we can start justifying our own need for salvation right here because we think that we're fairly good right here. I mean, all kinds of people behave worse than we do. I mean, you work with some of them. You live in the same neighborhood with some of them. You might even have a couple of them in your family. I don't know. <laughs> but you live better than they do. You, you do better. I mean, you're, you're a kinder, more loving person and stuff, all that. And God doesn't allow us to think that way, though. Because he reveals in his perfect, holy, moral law that we have to keep perfectly that we haven't. And that we need his help, his solution to our imperfection. And when we feel guilty for what we do that's wrong, we should and we compare our lives with the life that God wants us to live according to Scripture, and we see there is no way at all I can ever please God. I can't do enough good. I can't visit enough people in the hospital. I can't read enough Scriptures. I can't pray enough. I can't do enough. So the only thing I can expect from God who wants perfection is His anger and His punishment. 
But thank God I know out of His love He provided for me. And I realize how much I need the provision that He has made. Because without God's moral law, I don't think I would have turned to Jesus. I would have went my own way. Yes? It's been said that judgment without mercy is tyranny. Mercy without judgment is anarchy. We find in our Father the perfect balance between the two. He's neither an anarchist nor is he a tyrant. He's given us Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. He's our sins. It's a perfect balance. Absolutely. Brother, give us Romans 3.20. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Wow. We know we needed to be saved. And God provided the way. There's one more thing that the moral law teaches that I want us to look at. And... and this is for the person who has already put their, their trust and obedience into Jesus Christ. And you might think that, well, we don't need to be bothered with the moral law anymore. I mean, thanks to Jesus, our sins have been forgiven. Uh, thanks to Jesus, he's completely fulfilled all the requirements of the moral law uh, in his own you know, place. God had declared him righteous. And the moral law causes the believer to see how much you and I owe Jesus Christ. It's not just we remember his death every Lord's Day. It's also remembering what we owe him because of what he did. The better we know what God requires of us, the more we realize how impossible it is for us to do it. Then we begin to understand how much Jesus has done for us. And the moral law makes us grateful for the Savior that God provided. It shows us what we can do to prove our thankfulness to Jesus. We can, we can live in a way that pleases God to the best of our ability and obeying the moral law. And when we fail, we're going to always still want to please God. He's the one that we want to please and we want to continue to grow in our holiness because of the gratitude that we have for Him. I'll tell you what, a Christian lives Thanksgiving Day every day. Brother, give me Colossians 1.10. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please Him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. I'm not going to get preaching on that passage. <laughs> uh, I'll only tell you that we have a wonderful God who's provided so much for us that we ought to be the most thankful people on earth. And I'm thankful for all of you. And that's enough for today. Yes.